So I'm 34 years old. I'm living and working in Greece. I'm in my second summer there. I just spent the whole year working with refugees from, from Afghanistan, from Iran, and from Syria. And it was amazing. So the summer, I was scheduled to work at this summer camp that the mission owned two hours north of Athens. And this is where I met the Agapimenos. Now, for convenience sake, we'll call him Ryan the Temp, okay? Ah, uh, there we go. He was an 18-year-old kid, and he was in charge of, of the camp facilities and the operational stuff that would go on for the summer. Now, he was a good kid. I like this guy. I like Ryan. He was smart. He was efficient. He was good with people. But being 18 years old, he lacked certain skills, and he lacked technical talent in some areas. So, you know, being 34, I'm like, I'm going to help this guy. So we worked together all summer. It was a great summer, and, and, and everything went well. So after the summer, Ryan the Temp decided that he would stay on as a missionary like I am. And, uh, and it was there that I heard that Ryan the Temp would be promoted to assistant to the regional manager. The plan was announced for him, yeah, all joking aside, the plan was announced for him to be the executive assistant of the president of the organization. Now, as you can imagine, this chafed 34-year-old Heath. You didn't have the pleasure of knowing 34-year-old Heath, which is probably a good thing. And this was hard for me to hear. Because not merely a year ago, in my capacity as an electrician, I ran multi-million dollar jobs and ran crews of 50 guys trying to find and get things under budget, on time. Who would have thought a guy with like weird adult ADHD brain could accomplish that? But it was amazing. And here I find myself struggling with Ryan the Temp being my boss. I actually like this guy. But that being true, under the hood, in my heart of hearts, in my sin, I was angry that some 18-year-old punk was going to be my boss. No matter how much I liked him. I, I, I was super conflicted. I, I really liked this guy, but the surge of jealousy, the surge of bitterness, and the overwhelming desire to crush Ryan the Temp like a cockroach, it just welled up inside of me. And I knew that these feelings were wrong. I knew, I knew they were wrong. Now, the organization that I worked with had a human resources department, and the mechanism for member care was called the buddy system. It turns out it was anything but. So I went to the human resource guy, and uh, for convenience sake, we'll just call him Toby. And I, and I confessed to Toby that I was really struggling with this decision to have Ryan, the temp, as my boss. I, I, I articulated to him that in my sin, I would have troubles with Ryan the Temp, and I wouldn't listen to him, and it would be really difficult for me. I wanted to confess this feeling that I had. I wanted to make them aware that I was struggling. I wanted them to walk alongside me as brothers in Christ. I wanted them to help me. I wanted them to protect me from myself. Toby listened. Toby nodded. Toby acknowledged my cries for help. And Toby reassured me that everything was going to be okay. Well, unhinged from my burden of guilt, confessed freely my sin. I was in an amazing mood. I was really looking forward to the fall. And then I get a call from my boss, the president, and he wanted to have coffee with me. I'm thinking, 
wow, this guy has never, I'd never had, I've been there a year and a bit and I'd never had coffee with the boss. I'm like, this is really exciting. So I, super excited. Heath drives there fast, gets to the coffee appointment. Yeah. To my horror, I'm met by the whole leadership team thinking to myself, this can't be good. I realized that it was a sneak attack. Instead of the president, I was being probed like some sort of inquisition on the rack, asking me all of these questions. What led out of the mouth was, was this. It wasn't even, hello, how you doing? I even had to pay for my own coffee. That's the part that really chafes me. And the first question is, hey, we hear you're having troubles with Ryan the Tenth. What's going on? I'm like, what? Like, because this was like a month earlier. I, I had forgotten about it. Everything was okay. We hear that you're slandering him. What? We hear that you're spreading lies about him and his character. We hear that, you, that these lies are actually hurting him and his credibility. Mental note, never talk to Toby again. We hear that you're spiritually mature, he, immature, Heath. We hear that you are unteachable, Heath. We expected more from you. Now, if you know me, it is by the sheer grace of God that I didn't turn green and explode and, and probably lose my job through violence that day. What happened was, I was completely and utterly destroyed. I learned right then and there this you know, concept of the agape meno. See, it was here that I understood that this kid was the beloved one, that for some reason I had inadvertently poked them in the eye about this kid and his, some of his deficiencies. I had embarrassed them, and I was being punished for that embarrassment. I walked away from this meeting, no exaggeration, stripped of all leadership responsibilities, uh, physical responsibilities, all opportunities for, to do anything exciting, stripped of all dignity and stripped of all hope. My only option, really, that they painted for me was, and I quote, all you have to do is shut up and do as you're told. I realized what this meant was I had no autonomy. Day or night, they'd phone me, and they did. Go to here, do this. Doesn't matter what you're doing, Heath. Family time, forget about it. Go do this. I went from teaching uh, refugees and cooking for them to literally cleaning the toilets after you feed refugees, 500 of them, lentils. Let me tell you, that's not pretty. At one point, it got so bad that they didn't even give me permission to go and attend my sister-in-law's wedding. I had been succinctly and effectively canceled. Disappeared. I was functionally enslaved, and I had no recourse to say no. So two years later, the only option that I did have, I, I used, and I resigned. And in the parting documents, there was a clause in there called the shunning. Well, they called it something different, but that's what it was. For two years, I could not enter any of their facilities. I could not disciple any of the people that I had been working with on my own. I could not even talk to my friends. I was persona non grata. They had hoped. In fact, later after I had talked with them, they'd hoped that I'd fail. They'd hoped that I'd fail. Toby bore false witness against me. 
Toby misrepresented me to protect his reputation. Toby misrepresented me to protect Ryan the temp, the agape menos. I have never in my life been betrayed like this before, and I still walk with a limp, and I bear the wounds of this experience. Now, I don't tell you this story to elicit some weird, twisted sympathy. No, I tell you this story because this story, in my pain, illustrates the dire consequences of our text this morning. It literally, it literally encapsulates the broad implications of our text. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. See, Christ said, our words have power. Our words have power to build up, and our words have power to dismantle and destroy someone's reputation. Our words bring life, and our words can also bring death. Now, to help us sort out how we deal with this, we're going to look at two things. Pretty simple this morning. What does this text show us? And then what do we do with it? What are the implications for us? So the last few weeks of this 10-word series, or the Ten Commandments, the last few weeks could be described as this. Like, hey, don't take your neighbor's spouse. Don't take your neighbor's life. And don't take your neighbor's stuff. And then next week, we'll talk about, like, don't even desire your neighbor's wife, spouse, or anything else. This ninth word What it does, though, it it ensures fair and equitable justice. Make sure that that functions between this covenantal community. Narrowly speaking, see, this new nation of Israel, it had many laws. And many of them, if you read like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you can actually get through all of that. A lot of these laws have corporal punishment, like the death penalty. So in order to make sure that somebody actually dies for the crime that they've committed... They wanted to make sure that the person who was actually accused was actually accused fairly. And he actually or she actually had done the thing that was accused of them. The protection was taken so seriously that if you were found to be a false witness, you actually bore the punishment of what you were trying to give to the other person. Look, let's go for fun to Deuteronomy chapter 19. I know it's dusty and it's in their book. It's near the beginning. Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 19. And it says... A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Okay, a single witness, that's okay. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Verse 16, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judge who were in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he is meant to do to his brother. Ooh, powerful words. You shall purge the evil from your midst. This is how serious and how powerful this ninth word is for us. God is holy. God is, is righteous. And from this holiness stems not only love, but also justice. From the very beginning of this new nation of Israel, God is very concerned about fair and equitable justice between us as peoples. Now, I would like us to turn to a fairly familiar text now, probably not one you consider in this light. John chapter 8. This is an interesting story. In John chapter 8, which you've got, you know, we're part of the thing where everybody's, you know, bringing false things to te- or the weird scenarios to te- come to Jesus and say, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? To try and test him. So John chapter 8, starting at verse 2, we get this story. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in their midst, they said to him, 
Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? What do you say? Verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote a note with his finger on the ground. See, this is where we get sidetracked in this text, because we always are trying to figure out what he's trying to write here. But that's irrelevant to the story. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote a note in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and, and Jesus was left alone with the woman, standing before him. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Have you ever thought in this story, why did everyone leave? You ever thought that? You're thinking, she's guilty, right? The lady is apparently caught in the act. She's guilty. So why wouldn't they stone her? Why, why shouldn't they stone her? Because they left, because Jesus subtly confronted them with this command that we're looking at today. The sin of false witness. See, to trap Jesus, they were being deceptive. And, and by default, they were bearing false witness because what, what the law states is they were actually supposed to bring both parties before. Not just the woman. No, the man and the woman were supposed to be brought forward for justice. They were using her, condemning her, bearing false witness to her to actually get to Jesus. Evil intent. Seeing this, when Jesus confronts them about it, they go, oh, yeah, hmm, I don't want to have to be stoned myself, so I think I'm just going to exit stage left. This is what I think is going on in this text, and it's powerful. Just as the third word, where we're to honor God in his name, is about how we're supposed to treat him. This is a vertical relationship on how we are to treat God. This command today is concerned with how we treat one another horizontally, how we honor the name of our neighbor. Now, the neighbor is just like literally anyone around us. If we're honest with ourselves, we just give lip service to this command, right? It's like like, when you read it, you kind of like, thou shalt murder, blah, 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 blah. and then you get to the point, oh, covet your neighbor's wife, and then, okay, that's it. We skip this. We don't even realize that it's here. I want you to see. I want you to listen acutely to just how important Jesus takes this command. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Here's another scenario where scribes and Pharisees are all like, throwing pot shots at Jesus to try and trap him. And in verse 35, in Matthew chapter 22, one of them, a lawyer, asks him a question to test him. Teacher. It's like, ah, I know this. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now that's command one through three that we've looked at already in the last couple months. And then verse 38. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all of the law and the prophets. Don't misrepresent the name of God and do not misrepresent the name of your neighbor. That is just how powerful this is. Although the ninth word ensures that justice functions between neighbors because what we think when we read this, it's like, okay, I haven't been to court and I haven't perjured myself, so what's the big deal about this? No, what this is, this speaks broadly 
to a wider application of our truthfulness in our speech and our integrity. Truthfulness in our speech and our integrity. Now, as we transition to the second point, what we need to do is we need to look, Jen Wilkins got this book on 10 words to live by. It's like an exposition of this text that we've been looking at all summer. And she's got, and she defines four ways that we as humans struggle with our truthfulness and our integrity. The first one is reviling. Does anybody, you know, anybody know what that is? It's not a word we use very often, but it's essentially, it's mocking. It's like, ooh, I do that. Scoffing. Ooh, I definitely do that. Slander. I try not to do that. Sarcasm. Not me. Yeah, right. Malicious gossip. Angry verbal abuse. Proverbs 12, 17 to 18, probably speaks most acutely of what reviling means. Proverbs 12, 17 to 18. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence. See, it's in the context of this command. But a false witness utters deceit. And verse 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, a couple of weeks ago, before Darius moved, we, this is going to be really nerdy. We went to a place called Academy Duello. It's on Hastings Street, and it's a place where you can learn Italian Renaissance sword fighting. Yep, I know. I'm that guy. So we had the two-hour thing. So for an hour, they taught us how to sword thrust, how to parry. I won't do them for you because it's really nerdy. And we practiced for an hour beating upon each other. And then we gathered all, put all of our gear on, and Darius and I had a duel. I'm taking wagers on to see who you would think. So who think Darius won? Who do you think the fat old guy won? Oh, yeah, I kicked his butt. <laughs> you see, I actually kind of got in a scary way really into it because I recognized with a five-pound sword in my hand, every single sword thrust was meant to cleave the other person in two. And once I clicked that in my head, I intimidated him and made him run. No, actually, it was a pretty close deal, duel. But we actually left bruises on each other because we were beating each other so ferociously. See, reviling is when we use our words in deceit to cleave one another in two. That's how powerful our words are. It's when we use our words with vicious and violent intent, meant to kill, harm, and destroy. Reviling is not passive. Reviling is not subtle. Reviling is the drive-by shooting of character assassination. It's literally carnage and shell casings everywhere. Everywhere. Reviling is so destructive that you probably didn't even notice that we had dealed with, dealt with those and, and addressed them in our 1 Corinthians series. So we actually looked at two vice lists in 1 Corinthians in the past year that had this word reviling in them. Let me re let's refresh our memory. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 11 says, now this is for fun. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, or even do not eat with such a one. 
Whew, okay. And then it gets more dicey in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, we are so hung up on culturally specific things in these texts, hot button issues that are glowing like a beacon of light, that we actually do not even see how destructive reviling is. We do not know that how we treat each other verbally are like sword thrusts are sword thrusts. And this action, stuff that we do every single day, stands right beside idolatry, drunkenness, and sexual immorality. Whew. We are guilty of this every day if we're honest with ourselves. This problem, though, is highlighted most acutely when we go all Karen on social media on somebody. This is expressed most acutely and intently in our whole concept of cancel culture. We want justice for ourselves. We want honor for ourselves. We want by our own hands to raise our own value, our own capital, and our own reputation. And that happens by how? Stepping on somebody else to do it. And the most effective way to do that is with our words. Jen Wilkins, again, in her book, summarizes it this way. It's a clever little pithy statement. We are virtual Bonnie and Clydes with fully loaded keyboards and fully seared consciences. It's for this reason that I actually can't handle Twitter. You will never see me on Twitter. Well, the next area we struggle with is flattery. Let me ask you a question. When is a compliment not a compliment? Proverbs 26, verses 24 to 28 says this. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not. For there are seven abominations in his heart, though his hatred be covered with deception. His wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Hmm. In verse 28, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Notice the threefold use of hate in this text. Verse 24, hate disguises itself with his lips. Hate, in verse 26, hatred can be covered with deception. In verse 28, a lying tongue hates its victims. When is a compliment not a compliment? When is a compliment not a compliment? Flattery with evil intent is just like reviling. It's hate speech. It's hate speech. The words of the poet William Blake encapsulates just how tricky this one is. Listen to what he has to say. A truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. A truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. Look, this is the subject matter of all of our TV. This is the subject matter of everything from the house of Gucci to Game of Thrones, to Squid Game, all of these things revolve around this. It's literally the smile on your face and the knife in the back. That's what flattery does, and that's how dangerous it is. And we as Christians struggle with this one so acutely. I grew up in the church, like literally since antiquity, and 
I can almost guarantee that flattery is the battleground in which church battles are fought. I don't think I'm exaggerating. Now brings us to the third area in which we struggle, and that's in silence. It's in silence. This is the era, error of omission. We read texts like James chapter 1, verse 19, and we say, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Okay, we get that. Okay, we've got to be slow. But many times we take this imperative to be slow to speak, and we cover it up. We're covering up our fear and the worst parts of ourself. And by silence, we can, we can absolve ourselves of guilt. You see, we take this command of to be silent, thinking that we're wise. We actually forget what James says in chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Whew. How many times have we fallen into that sucker? We must not use the command to be slow to speak, slow to anger, to actually cover up or use it as an excuse for not speaking at all. Silence is often masked cowardice, and I'm just as guilty as anybody. Silence, by default, can give approval to another's destructive words and makes us complicit. It makes us complicit. See, my introductory story of Toby, that was his primary error. In order to save himself, in order to, to not shift blame to him, he stayed silent. He stayed silent. He didn't stick his neck out for me when I needed him to. And in the silence, he threw me under the bus, drove over me on the bus, backed up and drove over me three or four more times. I became persona non grata, not only because he disclosed my words to him, but because he kept silent when he could have saved me. Now, I know this because 10 years later, he came to my house and face-to-face apologized me, apologized to me for this. He apologized for the times when he was silent, when he could have helped me, and he didn't. He apologized for me for disclosing deep things when I was trying to actually do the right thing, and he took it for evil intent. Why did he apologize to me? Because suddenly he found himself in the same situation that I did, persona non grata in his own organization. You see, by the grace of God, we are actually reconciled, and there's a beautiful end to that story. The last area in which we struggle here is misattribution. Just as the third command is not to misuse or co-opt the name of God for our benefit, for our influence, for our power, the ninth word here is similar. We are not to co-opt our neighbor's name, our neighbor's fame, our neighbor's reputation for our benefit, for our influence, for our power, and for our glory. How many times have you been in a strategy session at, your, at, at work and out of the lips of your boss comes your idea? And you're like, uh, what? No mention of you, no mention of your department. Have you ever watched, there's a British TV show called The IT Crowd, and it's exactly built on this premise. You've got a bunch of nerds in the basement who are like super geniuses. They do everything to run the company, and they never get glory, power, or benefit from their work. They're literally looked over. 
How many times have you been looked over for promotion because your reference that you use for your work, you were thrown under the bus so somebody else could receive the recognition and pay bump that you worked for, so hard for? How many of you ever cheated on an exam? Yeah, don't raise your hands. We can con confess to one another later. I read this article this week, ironically not associated with this. And it was an interesting article where cheating apparently in college and universities has reached an all-time high. Why? Because what we can do is we can pull out our smartphone, we can pretend to go to the washroom, we can Google the question, and then we come back, write it out, and Bob's your uncle, right? This one college professor in the States, I can't remember which school it was, he was so frustrated with this, so what he did is he, he created a, uh, an impossible question. He, he embedded it into his test, and then what he did is he logged in under a pseudonym, like, user account, and, and posted a plausible answer on all the, all the chat boards that they use for study. So not only does he put the question, it's like bait and switch, right? And he puts the answer there. So, the day of the exam comes, and out of the 50 students, 14 of them went to the washroom and had the right answer on the test. Subsequently, they failed, and a letter was sent to the, you know, them saying that, by the way, you violated the university's, you know, integrity rules, so sayonara. This is misattribution at work. When we commit misattribution, we mask our sloth and our laziness for genius. We benefit at somebody else's expense. We don't put in the work. So the question remains is, how do we not fall into the trap of reviling, flattery, silence, and misattribution? How do we not fall into this? The, what's the opposite of bearing false witness? What's the opposite of reviling, flattery, silence, and misattribution? What is it? It's bearing one another in love. It's love thy neighbor as yourself. It's love God, love others. This is how important this is. Now, a few years ago, we did a, some of you may remember, some of you may not, we did a, a summer sermon series in the book of Proverbs. And I don't know if you got as much out of it as I did preaching through it. Oh, but there was a concept about righteousness and wisdom in there that stuck in my feeble brain. I haven't been able to shake it. In fact, everything I've tried to do on the downtown east side in the last two years revolves around what I'm about to tell you. It's blown my mind. Bruce Walkie, he's like some old, like, ancient, like, theologian. And he wrote a, wrote a commentary on Proverbs. And, and he says this. He says, righteousness in the book of Proverbs is equivalent to the Mosaic teaching of love your neighbor. So what he's saying is, is that righteousness and wisdom in the book of Proverbs is just like not bearing false witness against somebody. And then and here, here's, the, here's the axiom. The wicked ad advantage themselves by disadvantaging others. That's what false, bearing false witness, that's what it does. But the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. How many of you remember that statement? It's time to be refreshed again. In Proverbs, to bear false witness, in the book of, of, of all of the Old Testament books, to bear false witness is to be foolish and wicked, as presented in Proverbs. Disadvantaging yourself for the benefit of your, disadvantaging your others for the benefit of yourself. So to be righteous then, to be wise, to love your neighbor, to live out this command, the ninth command of what we've got here. Walkie says we're supposed to disadvantage ourselves to advantage the other. Instead of reviling and using our speech to honor, 
or to, to dishonor, we honor. We praise the other person. In good things and in, in small things and in little things and big things, we praise the other person. Instead of sword thrusts, we heal. That's what this looks like. Instead of hatred disguised as flattery, we give encouragement and love. Encouragement. How many, how many of you have been encouraged lately by anyone? Let me tell you, when you've been encouraged, it is literally like having your tires so pumped full, you feel like you're bursting. Encourage one another this afternoon. Instead of silence, we can actually risk our own safety and advocate for those who have no recourse, who have no voice. Instead of misattributing someone else's work, somebody else's effort, somebody else's intellectual property as our own, we can learn to give away our best ideas and our best people to others. Judging by how much the Bible deals with this, we need to confess that we're wanting in every single one of these areas, aren't we? We still struggle with self-protection. I know I do. We still disadvantaging other people for our benefit, for our safety, for our glory, for our power, whatever it is. We do that every day. We need this morning to surrender to the one who has lived out this command perfectly. And you know where I'm going with this. It's Jesus. He is the anointed one. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that can take all of this desire for self-protection away. He's the one that can remove it from us. We need to confess our culpability, just like Toby confessed to me. And you can rely on Jesus for this power. Jesus was reviled. Did you know that? He was mocked. He was beaten. He was slandered for us. Jesus was at the receiving end of betrayal, acute betrayal, at the form of flattery, a kiss. And he did this for us. He suffered in silence while the person who is going to be the rock on which he builds his church, Jesus suffers in silence while Peter denied his very existence. And the funny thing is, his works were misattributed to that of the devil himself. He does all of these things and more. So that by his death, by his burial, by his resurrection, we can actually have a righteousness that is not our own. We can have a righteousness that is not our own, and we can actually live free to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. Through Jesus, we have the power to live out this command with integrity. We do. Jesus is the antidote to self-promotion. Through him, we can honor, we can praise, we can encourage, and we can bolster others. And this is how we show love to the other. As we close, I would like to read us 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter is an amazing book. And if you've been memorizing it all summer, it's pretty amazing. It deals with the context of, of a group of a church who are struggling with persecution, who people have used this Christian church to actually build up. And it's been squashed. It's been crushed. And, first, and Peter tells Peter, the guy who denies Jesus, says to them this. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy. He's talking about himself and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. This is saying, 
Surrender to Jesus and you will be made new. You will be made new. So our, our only choices this afternoon or this morning, whatever time it is now, is either we can ignore this, we can go, yeah, forget about it, and you can walk away. Or you can feel really guilty about the words I've just said to you, and you can go, whew, I guess I gotta make a list, I gotta do better, try harder, work it out, make a list of all the people I might have offended, and start ticking off the names of, no. What that does is that enslaves you further. That enslaves you further. What you need to do is like Toby, Surrender, confess your sin. Confess your sin that you have tried to, to protect yourself. Surrender that vulnerability to Jesus. And what we do is we lift Jesus high and we fade into the background, loving other people and loving God. Let's pray. God, we recognize that this is super duper hard for us, that we mess up every single time. Every single time I open my mouth, I say something stupid. Lord, and I ask you to take away my desire to revile others. My silence when I should speak. The flattery that I say, help me to encourage. And Lord, help me not misattribute stuff that other people do as mine. So Lord, we confess that we are wanting. But we also confess that we need you. We need your son. And he has the power to actually make us new. And this we pray by, by his power who is right your right hand. Jesus, the righteous one, we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.